Hello, good afternoon and welcome to everyone. Welcome to this webinar organised by BECG on the government's white paper on planning. It's called Planning for the Future. It promises to overhaul the planning system and it's already proving to be pretty controversial. Um, I'm Andrew Hoskin. For 30 years I was a reporter for the BBC. I've also written a couple of books. Uh, we have a very knowledgeable audience uh, made up of developers, planning consultants. We have a smattering of housing associations and some infrastructure and commercial people. Well, seven years just to agree a local plan and five years to get a spade into the ground. Well, that's how Robert Jenrick, the Housing Secretary, summed up our planning system last year. Uh, Boris Johnson, rather predictably, went further, uh, saying what he described as delays to count newts uh, were having a big uh, effect on the economy, a big drag on the economy, and thwarting the government's proposals to build 300,000 new homes a year. So this white paper is promising to scythe through planning red tape at the same time as making sure that local communities are consulted and allowing the government to adhere to its green target, its very ambitious green target of zero CO2 emissions by 2050. So is it a recipe for post-pandemic economic recovery and the, the enhancing the, the government's ability to build all these new homes, new homes, or is it a recipe for overdevelopment, poor quality housing, a democratic deficit, all on the back of a, a reduced and diminished uh, planning system. Well, to discuss these issues, um, we have two distinguished panelists. Uh, I also have to say that everyone in the audience, please submit your questions. Uh, we're gonna have a Q&A uh, session after our two panelists have uh, discussed this white paper and given their own view. There's a little box in the right-hand corner of the screen. Uh, that's where you write your questions, I'm informed. Uh, so please get your thinking caps on and let's um, and let's get these questions in for our Q&A later. So first of all, I'm pleased to say we're joined by Andrew Howard, the Managing Director of BECG. I spoke to Andrew only last year about the planning white paper and the controversial housing algorithm. Uh, we, we discussed that. We're also very uh, pleased to be joined by uh, Clive Betts, MP for Sheffield Southeast and the long-term uh, Labour MP and the long-term Chairman of the Select Committee, which oversees the activities of the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government, MHCLG. Now, uh, the MHCLG Select Committee has been taking evidence uh, from all kinds of people and experts over the last few months on the white paper. Uh, the report of the committee is expected um, we believe at the end of this month, uh, but so Clive is here today to talking in a personal capacity, uh, his own views uh, on the white paper. So over to you, Clive. Uh, Andrew, thank you very much for that introduction. And I uh, say so we haven't produced our report yet, so uh, I can't uh, presume what it's going to say. As we do work with our committee, uh, we, we take the evidence, we consider it, and we try to come to uh, a consensual, unanimous view. Uh, what I will do is to draw from the evidence that we've received and also draw from past reports we've done about the planning system, some of which are very relevant, as I will explain. Um, first of all, the, the, the aim of, we've looked at the, the, the white paper, we looked at the, uh, the housing need calculations and we looked at changes in, to permitted development that had been already agreed. Um, clearly the white paper, the, the, the intention, the aim, the fundamental objective is to build more homes. One thing the white paper doesn't uh, do is to explain precisely why homes are not being built under the current system and why the new system would actually improve that. 
The reality is that most planning applications get approval and there are currently, I think the best part of a million applications waiting to be built. Uh, go back to the Letwin report. Uh, Letwin concluded it was actually not the granting of planning permission, but the build out that was a problem. And this white paper does nothing to address that issue uh, of build out. Um, the other thing that was drawn to our attention, of course, that it doesn't deal with anything apart from housing. Uh, planning is actually quite important for, for, for business, for commerce, for industry, uh, as well as for, for, for retail, for leisure, all those other issues. Um, it's almost an afterthought, if there is a thought at all, about those issues. Um, and yeah, I think it was the British Property Federation said, you know, where's the word um, commercial property in this? Well, it, it doesn't appear in the whole white paper. Um, so the, the other thing I think about it is, is that it is um, very long an aspiration and a bit short on detail. Um, and I think we all know we're planning. Uh, we only really know about the reports when someone writes them down and says, this is precisely what's going to happen. Uh, and then we find that the lawyers and the planning consultants make quite a lot of money out of it. Uh, so one thing we've said in the past is before you make changes to planning, uh, you should produce the details in a draft uh, bill and that draft bill should be subject to scrutiny. We very much like to do that uh, as part of the, uh, the select committee. But positives, though, uh, I think local plans are at the heart uh, of these proposals. Uh, and I think anyone who believes in a plan based system, and I do, the committee does, would welcome that. We have in the past recommended that local plans should be statutory. It's taken the government dismissed that back in 2015. Uh, it's interesting, it's taken them six years to get round to the same conclusion the committee got to. Got to. We called in the past for simpler local plans. It is ridiculous the amount of detail, paperwork that goes into local plans. Uh, I went to the planning inspectorate with the committee a few years ago. We saw a whole table full of boxes for one small district council. Uh, yeah, the public can't engage in that detail. It, it, it's ridiculous. Uh, so getting them simpler, getting them more up to date, because the world changes so fast, as we've seen with online shopping over the years, that, that, that retail uh, premises have got to be adapted and the amount of floor space adapted at local plan levels. Local plans are often, even if they're there, are out of date. So simpler, quicker, local plans is a positive and, and, and digital is a positive in there uh, uh, as well. Whether, however, you can review and change all local plans in the country in 30 months, uh, whether that's possible uh, for plans to do in terms of resources, either money or staff, I think is highly problematic uh, and something will be a challenge. The change to the zonal system, obviously fundamental change. Um, I think there's a real concern there that certainly we need to get more public consultation and involvement in the creation of local plans. But uh, currently, most public involvement is at the planning application stage for an individual planning application they've got concerns about. We know that happens. Can we persuade the public to, to come in and be consulted and involved at an earlier stage? If they don't, will the public feel badly let down and disenfranchised by these proposals? I think it's particularly true um, of the uh, of, of the areas where you know there's not certainty, they're not protected, uh, they're not they're not uh, areas uh, for growth. Uh, that 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 middle category, uh, where I think the minister in his last evidence to us sort of reflected on and thought there had to be a bit more nuanced approach to to that sort of uh, of development. Uh, and I think that's something we're going to have to have a, a, another uh, look at. So the renewal areas, I think, some some doubts about, and and and, and even in the, the the growth areas, yes, I think it it, it is important. If local plan says housing is going to be built there, then housing will be built there. But there has to be a real understanding of community involvement in the type of housing, the nature. 
uh, of the of the development. One interesting thing: statutory authorities are consulted on every individual planning application. They're not consulted on local plans. So if you're going to look at the uh, impact, say for the canals and river trust, who gave evidence to us. Uh, have they got the resources uh, to go through every single site before a local plan is produced uh, to do their statutory consultation? Issues there that haven't been thought through at all. The levy, uh, major changes there, concerns raised with us about the doing away with 106 uh, and the effect that could have on affordable house building, uh, concerns that housing first could displace affordable rented housing, concerns that small sites, more of them will be exempt from affordable housing, concerns permitted development is ex exempt from affordable housing. So real concerns from social housing providers that were raised with us. And while there's no reference to land value capture, you know, changing the 1961 Act is something the committee's recommended, uh, nothing in there at all. Duty to cooperate, you know, it, it, it doesn't work, yes. Where, where's the real role for, for, for sub-regional planning? Uh, no, again, not really dealt with. Um, permitted development, real challenges. Can you have permitted development changing um, uh, retail to residential uh, without a proper local plan, um, which could be impacted adversely by individual properties pepper-potted around in an area? Uh, and, and there has to be some real planning uh, a, a new of our town and city centres in the light of COVID, but also the light uh, in view of the transfer of shopping uh, online. Uh, finally, the housing needs assessments, real controversy that the first set of proposals uh, shifted development from the north to the south, contrary to levelling up. Uh, then we got complaints from the rural areas in the south about the amount of development. It's now shifted the development uh, back to town and city centres, with parts of London saying they simply can't build the number of houses proposed, uh, and cities now saying they're going to have to build them to the green belt. Well, disadvantaged areas in the north uh, are not being asked to build more homes. So I think some, some real interesting challenges around there. I've just skated over a lot of issues there, Andrew. I'm sure there are more others that people may want to, to raise with me. Well, thanks, Clive. That's, uh, you really give a, an idea just how wide uh, a subject this is and how many aspects of our built environment it takes, you know, economic housing and all the rest of it. Um, so thank you very much for that. Now we, we turn to you, Andrew Howard. Uh, Clive mentioned digital consultation as part of the overall issue of, of, of public consultation and in, involved in the planning process. And I know this is something you've touched on, not only you know in your work, but also through your surveys for example with Savanta Comres when you surveyed local councillors who were very concerned about the potential for a democratic deficit in the planning process as a result of this white paper. So what are your initial thoughts now on, on the white paper and all these issues that it encompasses? Uh, thank you Andrew. I mean I'll say a few remarks about the digital issue you just mentioned and then I'll make some more general comments. I mean clearly it's been 2020 was a pretty staggering year for everybody for obvious reasons but one of the I think few upsides of the pandemic have been this shift towards a digital engagement in, in, in a broader aspect of society. And certainly in planning terms, it's been fantastic to see the way local authorities, the way PINs have gone online with planning meetings and put in place the framework for a more digital approach to local planning. So I think actually that's one of the few areas where the pandemic's actually been helpful. And it's certainly one of the areas in the government's work paper which I would strongly support this whole digitalization of local planning and using digital communication to involve the public in the planning process. So that's good. I mean, I'm very mindful um, here. I'm going to probably agree with a lot of what Clive has said. Maybe that's a, that's a good thing. I might be a little bit more controversial in certain areas. 
I mean, I think I would say from the very beginning that I'm very sympathetic with the situation that the government and ministers are in and the senior civil servants. I mean, you couldn't imagine a worse context for introducing fundamental reform of planning. Starting off with Brexit and all the disruption that creates, then obviously the COVID pandemic. I think across Whitehall and across local authorities, we're all aware that organisational capacity has been hollowed out, the money's been spent, and the bandwidth of people to embrace some of the issues has clearly been um, reduced. Well, I think I give the government some credit for trying to plough on with a white paper and planning reform in that context. Um, and when you look at the context of what they're trying to do, the context that the white paper sits within, it's even more ambitious. It's not just planning reform, it's decarbonising the economy and all the implications for domestic dwellings and existing housing, let alone new housing. It's all the building rights issues that have to change, all the issues around cladding, and the leasehold agenda. Um, and in the middle of that, you've got some very positive aspirations. Building more beautiful is an obvious one. Um, and this big commitment to 300,000 new homes. So they have stuck to their guns in terms of trying to be radical, trying to be ambitious. I give them credit for that. However, I think the execution of the white paper, to be honest, um, could have been um, a lot better. And I've got four criticisms really, but I think some of them echo what Clive has said and some of them are slightly different. I think fundamentally the white paper was hopelessly oversold and I know why that was done for political reasons but to try and turn it into the most fundamental reform of planning since the war was a bit absurd and, it, and within that overselling of the white paper there was a kind of ideological gloss. It was sort of influenced by some of the policy wonks in number 10 uh, the Dominic Cummings agenda around zoning, etc. There was an attempt to sort of talk up the radical. And I think actually that's created problems for them in terms of execution. And that's why, exactly as Clive said, quite a few of the specific measures were not really thought through at all. I think the zoning is half-baked in the way that it's presented in the white paper. The, the, the commitment to abolish, to, to cooperate, very strange in the absence of any regional planning approach and there's a number of other areas where the aspirations there and it's positive in what they're trying to do but the detail doesn't support it as well as that i think there are some obvious gaps which is just shocking really i mean i'm almost tired of talking about greenbelt as a as a gap the elephant in the room we constantly talk about this elephant called greenbelt the white paper just swerves it and that's just not good enough um, the commitment to regional planning. Um, I understand the politics. It was the it was something that was very much the baby of former Labour governments, John Prescott, Excel, you know, RDA, regional spatial strategies. And when the government came, when the Conservatives came in, one of their big commitments was to get rid of regional planning, embrace localism, take local plans down to the district level. The problem is that's created all kinds of problems which have never been properly resolved and I don't think this white paper resolves them. And I think the final criticism I would make, and I think this is quite an interesting implied to you on this, there's another agenda in parallel to this which is around decentralisation, elected mayors, combined authorities um, and that amalgamation of local authorities into unitary authorities. The whole structure of 
planning and local government is affected by the other agenda. That was meant to be another white paper. I think it got postponed. And it seems to me now that the white paper on planning is in the long grass and somewhere hiding in the same long grass is the white paper on devolution and decentralization. To me, they're part of a common agenda. I don't know how you can reform planning without bringing those together. So to be positive, what am I looking for? What would I like the government to come forward with in the autumn if they get round to it? We have to address the green belt issue. It's clearly politically toxic. Both parties struggle with it. There's a massive, um, Clive mentioned it in the context of housing numbers, there's a massive, massive issue to address there. There has to be some way forward, which is to take the politics out of that, maybe through some expert body, um, in, or an inquiry, whatever, some way to find a way through that debate. So the politicians at local level and national level have got some cover for being a bit braver. Second of uh, my sort of four wish lists is regional planning. Don't call it that if you don't want to, if that's too politically difficult, but please, we can't have everything being done at a district level because it doesn't deal with that, the need to um, get collaboration between authorities. It encourages difficult decisions to be postponed. It just doesn't work. So there needs to be some regional mechanism. I would like the government to commit to larger settlements, um, whether they're garden villages, urban development corporations, whatever it is. But it seems to me that larger settlements where you can properly plan infrastructure and maybe have a greater mix of build to rent or something like that to deal with the phasing of delivery is the way forward. Final comment, obviously at BECG we work with local authorities across the country day in day out. We desperately need some more carrots for local authorities. One of them might be some better resourcing of local planning authorities. It's woeful in certain areas, it's not their fault, they've got an impossible job. We need more resource going into local planning and more carrots for local authorities to be more positive about hitting their targets. And then finally, this will make me unpopular with the, um, the Democrats, but we need some more sticks. Central government must have some mechanisms, either on a national or a regional level, to actually forcing through delivery. You know, I was talking to a client only yesterday who said, it's nearly 15 months, I think, since a resolution to grant a committee, and they still don't have a section 106. That situation can't carry on. So I think carrots and sticks to get improved performance amongst the LPAs will be a big step forward. So that's my sort of shopping list and an initial comment, but I'd be interested to know what Clive thinks about any of that. Well, thanks very much indeed, Andrew. That was, that was very interesting. We're still asking for people to submit questions. We do have a question in from Daniel Frid. Um, he asks, as part of the need to build back better, is there a role for more applications, large applications in garden cities, to be NSIPs, which are, is National Infrastructure Projects, am I right? Uh, um, would this circumvent the local plan process holding up development? First of all, to you, Clive. 
Um, well, I'm not sure the local plan process does hold up development, but I think there is there is a case for um, trying to find uh, areas for larger development. I think uh, uh, Andrew just mentioned that uh, as well as a way forward. Um, uh, yes, I, I'd be supportive of that and uh, uh, making sure that they're extremely uh, high quality. You know, we, we, we have the garden cities of the past. There's some re really good examples. But if, if, you, if you're going to do that, uh, then the thing I just mentioned in passing was about land value capture. Uh, these are only become feasible, these large developments, if all the benefit uh, of the uplifting value, which comes from saying this land is now going to be zoned for a major housing development, doesn't accrue to the, the, the probably the farmer who sat on, the, uh, on a farm. Uh, you know, the cows and the sheep don't make a lot of money or the corn, but houses make an awful lot of money. Uh, and I say you know, in my constituency, uh, most of the development in Sheffield for 20 years happened in my constituency as it grew out into what used to be Derbyshire and Nottinghamshire. Uh, the people who really made a lot of money out of that and it's been good for, uh, for, for house owners uh, and tenants. It's been good for developers, but it's been even better for the farmers who are now living in the Caribbean. Um, you know, and it's just wrong that, and we've got to change that system. Uh, we would never have built the new towns in this country and garden cities if we had the current planning uh, arrangements in place. Yeah. And, and to you, Andrew, what, what, what's your response? Well, there? I'm going to try and avoid offending the landowners and farmers that are our valued clients. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I think there's a lot of sense in that. I mean, we at BCG, we work in both planning regimes. We do national infrastructure projects, development consent orders for everything from roads to wind turbines, power stations, railways. And then obviously we do a lot of town and country planning act planning with local authorities. And it always strikes me as odd that you've got these two regimes and never shall the twain meet. And it seems to me odd that if you're going to sort of, there is a need, which I think everyone accepts, the big ticket um, large scale residential development in very well thought out locations not to get some kind of hybrid approach where the inspector could perhaps have a more um, hands-on role in um, bringing that forward. There's another aspect too, which I think Clive touched on in his own remark, which I strongly agree with. It's really strange in the white paper, it's all about housing. And it doesn't, it doesn't talk about infrastructure, it doesn't really talk about... It, it, obviously there's a reference to it in terms of the community level. But it seems to me everybody agrees that we need better quality housing, better design, better infrastructure, more planning, more efforts to bring the community on board. And I would have thought the NSIP process could be helpful. Going back to my earlier remark about regional approach, one of the things that I've always liked the idea of, but I can't find a politician to champion over to you, Clive, is the idea of um, the inspector having more of a regional role, maybe working with regional leaders to look at those applications which are just too difficult politically for an individual authority to address. Andrew, your 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 survey of with Savanta Comrades uh, last year highlighted concerns of many councillors, including many Conservative councillors, about you know the democratic process and how it's involved in this 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 white paper. I mean, 78% of councillors thought the proposed reforms would make planning less democratic. That included 61% of Tory councillors. Do you think the, the white paper addresses those concerns? Yeah, I think that partly comes from the way the after white paper was sold. I mentioned the reference earlier to zoning. And I think that there was a view among some councillors that it was a kind of, gee was clever idea out of number 10 on the policy unit that was going to push through 
a zoning approach which would leave committees unable to change and address applications. Clive mentioned, you know, it's great to have more consultation at local plan making stage, but you still need all of that quality consultation at planning decision making. I think the Conservative grassroots were unconvinced by what the government were trying to do, and I mean, Clive's better place than I am to comment on it, but I think they've made a complete mess of the whole issue of the algorithm and the numbers uh, and where the allocation of housing should go. It's politically difficult for a, a party of the Shires. Both parties struggle with this issue, but I, I think they, they do need to completely rethink that. Um, hopefully they'll come back to regional planning, but I, I live in hope. That's right, Andrew. I mean, I mean, Theresa May was one of those staunch critics, I think, of, of the, the white paper and the way she described it, I think, as ill-conceived, and particularly mm. in terms of not only housing targets, but also this issue of, of consultation. Is that your view, Clive? I mean, do you think that the white paper deals with these issues of local accountability and local democracy? Um, I think there are, there are two real concerns that were expressed. One was the uh, is, is the, the accountability, the right of the local uh, people to be heard, the right of uh, planning committees to make decisions reflecting their communities. Uh, and then there's the issue of the algorithm and where uh, housing uh, is going to be built. So on, on the, uh, the, the democratic deficit, I, I think there is a danger of being one there that communities will feel disenfranchised. Um, on the other hand, I think the government has a point to a degree that there are some examples uh, of local plans clearly uh, indicating that an area is suitable for development and then planning committees turning development down full stop. Uh, in a, I think a local plan, if, if properly drawn up, uh, recognising that housing has to be built somewhere in an area or other development has to go somewhere, uh, looks at the best places to put it. Um, and then the assumption is that, that if an application properly drawn up, uh, subject to conditions, comes in, it will be granted. Uh, but, but planning committees can get the, the, the pressure from local communities uh, and it gets turned down. So I, I think certainly I felt a strength uh, in, in, in my constituency being able to say to people, well, yeah, there is good development going there, but it was in a local plan 10 years ago. Uh, you know, it, it, and your house has now been built on that greenfield. At the same time, the greenfield next door to you uh, was in the local plan for the same sort of development. So, sorry, but in principle, that's it. So, I, 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 I've got some sympathy for that point, but clearly, you've got to nuance it a bit, I think, to uh, to allow the at least the view that that people can influence the type of, of development. And I think it's particularly true uh, of, of the renewal areas, which I, I, I don't think has been thought through at all. Uh, in the plan. In terms of the algorithm, um, the, the idea of having a determined planning need assessment is a good one. Uh, our committee supported it, the LGA supported it for the simple reason, if you look at local plan inquiries that go on for far too long, they nearly all um, you know, spend most of their time around assessing housing need. The developers saying we need more, the council saying we need less, uh, and other people chipping in as well. So getting away from that, I think, is, is, is a good idea. Um, I, I just think we need to have more of the houses allocated to poor areas in the north, along with more infrastructure spending. We're really going to level this country up. This is, is our time to do it. The problem, as I've said, is putting all those numbers into the major cities, you then have a, 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 are going to impact on the green belt. So one additional point, if I could, one of the things that's really missing here is, is a, the, the commitment to massive amounts of money on uh, regenerating brownfield land, land that's been contaminated by past industrial processes. M most people would welcome building on those areas. 
but it's not affordable at present. It doesn't stack up. It's not viable. So linking that in, getting that brown, brown field sorted out will take the pressure off the green belt. We've got quite a cheeky question, which I'll ask you to both to answer quite quickly before we move on to other questions, because they are coming in. It's from Chris Rickard. He's saying, how does the departure of Dominic, Dominic Cummings from Downing Street affect the planning white paper now? It seems the algorithm has been dropped, or the, the previous algorithm, and I wonder to what extent Tory backbenchers will now support these proposals. So what, what, what's your reading of the Cummings factor, um, Clyde? Um, I haven't really got one. I mean, I didn't, didn't know quite what he did anyway. I wasn't privy to all those conversations. Uh, all, all, all I would say is, uh, yeah, I mean, they have taken some steam out of it by taking pressure off some of the rural areas in the south is undoubtedly the case. Uh, I, I just hope there's a, a, a lobby from Tory MPs from poorer northern constituencies now uh, to say, but we aren't getting enough housing built here. Because with the housing uh, needs assessment comes money from Homes England. Uh, and, and, and the money from housing will follow where the housing numbers are. Uh, so I think there's an issue there that needs addressing as well. Sorry, Andrew, I cut you off earlier on. What, what's your view of that? Do you think well, it's... Well, it's tied in quite nicely with the Dominic Cummings question. Well, I'll avoid <laughs> making any comments about Dominic Cummings. But um, I said earlier on, I thought the white paper had been oversold and there'd been this kind of radical policy sort of gloss, which I don't think was helpful. That antagonised the shyness. I think sensibly the government retreated. They've got, they bought themselves more time now because of the pandemic and talking about the audit. Um, I'm actually quite optimistic. I think Chris Pinch is a very, um, a very capable minister. And I think all the evidence I've seen is that Chris Pincher and Robert Jenrick are listening and are taking advice. And um, I'm hopeful that they will come back with something that addresses precisely the points that Clive has made, because there is a lot of you know, there's a lot of cross-party common interests. It's not just the Conservative shires that have a problem with house building. It's a Labour Party issue as well. And this issue of balancing the North and the South and getting the infrastructure in place is a cross-party issue. So, I'm, I mean, one of my, I suppose, um, anxieties is that we'll have another government reshuffle and a change of ministerial team. And we go back to the bottom of the snake again, because I actually think that we're getting to the point now where Chris Pincher is really getting his head around the agenda and then making some positive steps. So whether that's because Dominic Cummings has left the pitch or not, I don't know. Um, but certainly I would hope that they're taking the time to rethink, fill in some of the detail that was missing, and come up with pragmatic, practical solutions rather than ideological ones. Anyway, none of us will, will miss talking about him all the time, which is one, uh, one advantage of his departure. Um, there's a very good question as well from Andrew Whitaker, looking at the you know the local planning authorities and their role. You know he asks if the system is fundamentally flawed, why do some local planning authorities perform so much better than others? It's always the same authorities that fail to plan, fail to deliver, fail to meet their responsibilities. Shouldn't we target those local planning authorities rather than reform the whole system? Andrew, over to you. Ah, right. Well, uh, that's subject uh, dear to my heart. Um, I've never led a local authority as Clive has, but I've sat on the planning committee, so I've got some idea from the other side of how it feels. I completely agree with Andrew Whitaker. I think an awful lot is about how the department and the Secretary of State and the ministers exercise power to actually get the local authorities to perform. I think I mentioned in my opening remarks the need for carrots and sticks. And um, 
you know, there's been times in the past where we've gone down new home bonuses and we've had different routes. But I could give you a list tomorrow of recalcitrant authorities, which are never going to get their local plan sorted out, which will refuse all kinds of things on perverse grounds. We all, I mean, I'm sure Andrew Whitaker's got a, a long list of those authorities, and they won't be a surprise to the Secretary of State or to Clive. And we need to performance manage much more effectively. But not lose sight of the fact that local government is in a really, really difficult position. And there are some fantastic local authorities doing some really good work. And we're very close to me in Hampshire. There's a local authority that's championing a garden village and you know, bringing forward thousands of new homes. So there's some very good proactive local authorities. But performance management has not been the department's strong suit, I think it's fair to say. Clive, over to you. What do you what do you think about? Do you, you obviously get good and bad planning authorities? Yes, and and that's true. You know that that's one of the 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 strengths and weakness of localism, isn't it? You 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 will get different capabilities and different approaches in different parts of the country. Now, I think. Uh, why the select committee supported uh, making local plans statutory is we do believe they are absolutely key to getting the planning system right. Uh, and we think the government should, the, the real challenge then is having made them statutory, what do you do if a local authority fails in their statutory responsibilities? You, you maybe have to come in and do it for them. That ought to be the threat. I mean, it, it is. Uh, well, I've got a lot of sympathy for local authorities. In the last few years, they've had their resources cut more than any other part of the public sector any other part of the public sector. Uh, but we have to remember that these changes came in about 20 years ago under the Labour government, the, the, the local plan system that replaced the previous unitary development plan system. Um, and you know, local authorities 20 years later, in some cases, have not got a local plan under the new legislation, new legislation, 20-year-old legislation in place. Um, and that is not acceptable, it just isn't acceptable but by any stretch of the imagination. So local authorities have, have a, something to be accountable for, uh, I accept that as well. Having said that, the process is a com ridiculously complicated. The, the amount of, not only the plans, the amount of documentation, the core strategies and everything else you have to do. Uh, yeah, the only people who read it are the planners and some developers. You know, the public never go anywhere near this. This is a system designed for the people on the in on the planning process, not for the rest of us. Uh, and, and I think it's it's got to change. The government are right about simplifying that. Um, just to remind everyone, please keep your questions coming in for our panelists. So we've got we've got a few coming in, but please please keep coming. A question of my own. I mean, this this issue about the the 106 agreement being replaced by this infrastructure levy. This is the 106 agreement, which allows for other kinds of you know, development of infrastructure around a, a big development. I mean, what, what's your view of that, Clive? Uh, I, well, we haven't come to a view as a committee. What I would say is a lot of evidence we receive from, from social housing providers. They're, they're really worried because 106 uh, alongside SIL at present gives um, a special place for affordable housing uh, within the planning system. And I think people are worried that that, that will go. Uh, Recognising the massive cuts to social housing grants since 2010, uh, you know, uh, this is one of the main ways we get affordable housing built, affordable housing for rent in particular, uh, is through the 106 agreements. If, if you if, if you 
merge that into a, a general levy and then you say the problems I uh, raised about uh, the, the first homes um, the priority uh, for taking small sites out of the process for permitted development not to, uh, uh, not requiring affordable housing then then I, th I think there's a lot of concern so I think 106 will probably stay in some form there is the additional problem that it was meant to be a new simple system there's going to be a percentage levy across the country that couldn't possibly work you look at the viability differences between building in the center of London and building in a, a disadvantaged part of the north, uh, you know, you probably won't get any levy out of properties uh, in, in the disadvantaged part of the north. You can get 40% uh, levy in London very easily. So you're going to have to have uh, regional variations. So it's not going to be a one size fits all system anyway. Andrew, what's your thoughts about 106 and this new infrastructure? I, mean, I think this is one of the areas where I want to see much more of the detail before knowing whether it's better or not. And certainly I think the development community is responding. They can see the upsides in terms of having a new simplified approach, but there are real concerns about how it will be implemented. And the Clive's point about viability is fundamental. And I work on planning applications all over the country and the difference in viability and what can be achieved in terms of the areas of bring the site forward are very, very uh, significant. I think the, the other issue really for me is um, the extent to which the process of capturing value through community tax, if you like, which is what we're talking about, whether it's actually something that's done to facilitate the quality development coming forward, i.e. insisting on money for education or affordable housing or whatever, as part of consenting application, or whether it's just another mechanism for slowing down or delaying. I mean, I mentioned earlier applications, which I, you, know, you see all the time, where a committee will reluctantly grant a res agree a resolution to grant, knowing that in the 106, they'll drag it out for months and months and months again and kill it that way. So I think in the detail of this, I'm not, I'm not a, a, tech, a technical consultant in this area, and there's a lot of complexity in the detail about the way levies operate. But um, I, for my approach, it would be, we need a simpler system, we need a fairer and more transparent system where value is captured People can, local people can see how the value of development is being spent on benefits in the immediate community. That's all about building consent and trust and support for development that we all want. And what we don't want is a system where we get into the same kind of mess that they got into with the algorithm, where it's, um, it appears superficially very clever, but it, the, the detail completely sinks it. Great, Andrew. Well, we've got a, a, another question in from uh, from our, our audience. This is from Samuel Stafford. He asks, if a long-term strategic spatial framework with the status of national planning policy is right for one part of the country, and the government has come to a conclusion that it's right for CAMK Ox, Cambridge, Milton Keynes, Oxfordshire, I'm, I'm assuming, um, that, that arc, why isn't it right for every other part of the country? Clive. Um, I think we've got to have a serious think about this now. Uh, you know, the duty to cooperators was a nice idea, but it, it was literally a knee-jerk reaction to the abolition of the regional spatial strategies. It wasn't thought through. Uh, and it, you know, I think the, the problems are in the term, aren't they? 
duty to cooperate and you know there's no requirement uh, no no obligation no um no consequences if you don't uh, it's worked one, well in one or two areas uh, in other areas it's almost ignored so i i think some requirement to to look beyond an individual local authority boundary but bearing in mind that people uh, live and work in, in in different places so so where the housing goes compared with with, with the economy uh, doesn't doesn't form nicely within a local authority area Camero, uh, combined authorities uh, i think are, are an interesting idea we suggested that as a committee in the past that they should be given a wider planning uh, responsibility uh, the problem is that some of those combined authorities uh, don't re uh, reflect absolutely travel to work areas so you may still need to do some cooperation between them uh, and, and the areas outside but also bear in mind that the, the, the regional spatial strategies weren't perfect either um, I, I'm sat in my home in Sheffield at present, just out of the window. Um, it, it doesn't merely go from Sheffield to Derbyshire, it goes from Yorkshire to the East Midlands. So you actually had a regional spatial boundary there. So you, st you still need some way to work across boundaries, even if you do regional strategies. We, we've, got, we've got to have a look at about how they could be replicated in other areas. Thanks, Clive. And, and also, before going to you, Andrew, there's a question related to this. Um, and it's again from Daniel Freed. He's saying, um, on behalf of a client, uh, from recent Oxford to Cambridge ARC announcements, it seems like MHCLG is very wary of being perceived to plan from the top down. Where's the will ever going to come from to make the difficult decisions that need to be made to deliver the development that we need? Andrew. Well, I think that goes back to my previous point. I think, I think it's tricky. I mean, and I think it's difficult for both major parties. I understand that if the Secretary of State weighs in with his boots and starts telling people where housing should go and what needs to happen, everyone starts screaming for democracy. And then if it goes to the other extreme, people like me say we need more intervention. But I mean, I think we're skirting around an issue that there is a lot of consensus on, and it should be possible to build a bipartisan consensus around Samuel's question around spatial strategies. I mean, it's interesting. I mentioned right at the beginning that the government had gone down a white paper on, on um, planning reform, but had this kind of um, agenda around devolution and decentralization, which was sort of parked and is now further behind. And we know why it was parked, it's because it's incredibly difficult. And it's got more difficult in the last um, year as the central government has had to balance this issue of imposing the kind of Whitehall view around COVID, Department of Health, onto local authorities. You know, we all remember the spats that Andy Burnham had and then um, uh, the Liverpool mayor had around COVID response. So this issue of where power lies in England, what should be decentralised is important. The problem is in terms of spatial strategies, it's such a mess. So in Greater Manchester, for example, I think I'm right in saying that in 2016, the 10 planning authorities in Greater Manchester fundamentally agreed and approached a spatial strategy which involved an approach to the Greenbelt. And then an elected mayor came in, Andy Burnham, that was reviewed, and we still don't have a strategy in place. In the, to be bipartisan, in the West Midlands, you have um, candidates for the mayoralty in the West Midlands literally going to sites which have been allocated by a local authority in the Greenbelt and saying they should not be released. So it seems to me that both parties, with respect to Clive, um, have it both ways in terms of um, Greenbelt release and the need for a spatial approach. And I think it would, be in a, it would be a really good move if we could link, get some clarity about local government reorganization 
and um, unitary authorities, get some clarity around the devolution structures that we're going to have, and then link that to a proper joined-up approach to spatial planning at whatever level. Thanks, Andrew. And uh, just a reminder to everyone, we've got about 15 minutes left of this webinar, so please uh, keep your questions coming in. Uh, we really do want to know what you want to ask, so please keep those questions coming in. Just a question of my own. In terms of builders and developers, we obviously have quite a few developers uh, in the audience. I mean, 30 years ago, small builders were responsible for 40% of uh, new homes compared with just 12% today. And we know a lot of them got wiped out in the um, in the recession, the Great Recession of 2007 to 2009. Clive, I mean, do you think these proposals could help? You know, get get more small builders back in back in back in the the, the game. Um, I, I'm I'm not sure. I think at local plan level, um, there ought to be uh, an emphasis, or, or councils ought to be encouraged uh, to try and make sites available for for small builders. Uh, I think that's absolutely right. Um, but there is there is a worry. I don't think I've got a magic solution to how uh, they can be helped. Certainly, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the, the banks killed a lot of small builders, didn't they? After two thousand and eight, you, know, you just have to talk to them and what happened. That um, they they were simply uh, you know their, their facilities for lending and overdrafts were just cut off at the knees, uh, and a lot of them went out of business. Uh, and, and it's it's much harder to build back than it is to keep going in terms of small companies. So I, I, I don't know. I mean, whether uh, you can do it by small sites or whether the capacity is just not there now and it's going to take quite a long time um, to, to, to encourage and build back. I mean, what, one thing we could do in this country um, uh, is to encourage a lot more what, what's called self-building, but often actually is about self-contracting of homes you go to germany and the netherlands and countries like that a lot more homes are built not by major developers um, but by small builders often working for uh, an individual client um, you go to almere in the netherlands it's about 800 homes on a site there uh, all built on a self-built basis a lot of them contracts with small builders to come on the site uh, the local authority provides a site it puts the, the the infrastructure the drains and the roads in uh, and then then sells the sites off i just think we could do an awful lot more about that but we've been talking about this in this country for the last 10 years uh, government's sympathetic but we still, ha we still haven't got the levers in place to really encourage it and make it work. I think that's one area where a lot of people will be delighted to have their own home designed and build what they want rather than go to a volume builder. Uh, but it just doesn't seem that the, 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 the arrangements are in place to enable people to do that. It's not people going and building their own home, taking their trowel out and their, 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 their hammer out and, and building. It's about contracting with small builders. I mean, Andrew, talking about the green belt, uh, you touched on that earlier in your in your talk, and your again, I go back to your comrades of Antipole, which showed that there were quite a few councils wanted more land to be added to the green belt. I mean, how, how important do you think that is? Well, I think part of the point is the way the green belt question is phrased for the public. If you ask somebody, do you want to maintain the green belt? Everyone says yes because they have this knee-jerk impression of what the green belt is. What the green belt is. You know, our green and pleasant land. The reality, as we know, that's around many of our major cities and conurbations, often green belt land is very inferior to other land which isn't green belt nearby. So I think the issue, we, we've got to find some way of getting off this idea that the green belt is some sort of house land category that can't be fiddled with. That's why I mentioned earlier the idea of having some kind of inquiry or some kind of body looking at it, because to me, it's not about reducing 
the last thing I would want to support is reducing quality green space. I mean, the whole decarbonized agenda is about creating green amenity. But that means you don't just fix a piece of land, you know, and leave it for 30 odd years on challenge. What you do is you look creatively forward as to what land could be brought in, what could be brought out, how you can green up land that isn't currently green. And I think the public, if they're educated by politicians, would embrace that. Um, but at the moment, mm -hmm. it's sold like kind of absurd binary choice. Are you in favour of concreting over or are you in favour of green? And, you know, hey, surprisingly, the public prefer the, the yeah. green. Can I just say something about the small builders thing? But I think that's a really important point. Well, clearly, this is driven by the economy, previous recessions, the role of banks, as Clive has said. But it's also, I think, if we go down the route of bigger allocations and bigger sites, there's more that could be done. These days, it's quite often, I mean, some of the best quality design that you will see is being delivered by volume builders. You know, the quality of design is dramatically better than it was 20, 30 years ago. And you see a lot of very large sites where three, four volume builders are all on the same site with slightly different styles, maybe different type of typologies, maybe different price points. And I don't see any reason why, if we're allocating either public land or private land for large-scale development, there's no reason why the Building Better Beautiful agenda can't kick in with typologies. You probably need a volume house builder to like provide the resource to make it happen because it's hugely expensive and very risky to take go through the planning process and have all of the land assessments and the technical work. But there's no reason why you couldn't have more space for small local builders or for um, self-builders to pick off parts of allocations exactly as happens in the continent. I think we just need to be a bit more creative about that. In my experience, holding the house builders are very positive about that because they want to create an environment where their product sells well and they want a consent. And if that consent comes through more typologies and some more local builders, I think you'll find the industry supportive. Thanks, Andrew. This target of 300,000, I mean, the last time people came up with these sorts of numbers was back in the 1950s when you know, Harold Macmillan was the housing minister. And I think he, he did actually manage to build 300,000 homes um, a year in the, uh, during, during the 50s. And, and I'm just wondering how realistic you think the, the government's first home scheme is, you know, this, this trying to provide affordable housing to first time, many first time buyers. They're talking about 30% discount for local people, key workers, uh, that sort of thing, and then that locking that in in perpetuity. And Clive, what, how realistic do you think do you think that is? Well, uh, I don't think it's a bad idea as such, and I think locking discounts in is is, is an interesting idea that that that, that ought to be uh, pursued. Uh, it shouldn't be at the expense of other affordable housing, affordable rented housing, which the current proposal is is to take the top slice off what would be affordable rented housing and convert it into homes for sale. I think that's that's really poor. Uh, but we, we've done a select committee report uh, 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 recently about uh, social rented housing um, and other forms of affordable rented housing. We concluded unanimously, you cannot build 300,000 homes in this country without a significant number, and we said a minimum 90,000, it's probably more, being built by the public sector in some form, either housing associations or local authorities. We've never done it. 
The private sector has never built 300,000 homes and never will do. Uh, getting to 200,000 is going to be a challenge on a regular basis. So we, we've got to have a, a major public sector input. The government didn't respond to that in, in their reply. They didn't address the, the number. They didn't address the mechanisms. There's got to be more public grant put in uh, to make it happen. Uh, and then we can build those, those homes. The other advantage of, of having a large number of um, rented homes from the public sector being built is it's counter-cyclical. The problem with 106 is uh, that the numbers of rented homes goes down as the number of homes for sale goes down uh, when you hit a, a, an economic uh, slump. Um, it, it, the public sector can actually be counter-cyclical in its building programs uh, where, where, where it's funded by grant. Uh, and, and therefore, there are lots of other advantages of doing it. Really disappointing. The government hasn't recognised they will not deliver their overall target without that major input from housing associations and local authorities. Thanks, Clive. And Andrew Howard, what's your view on the, the, yeah, these targets? I'm not sure whether Clive mentioned it, but one of the organisations which is going to be key to this is Homes In. And uh, I think Homes In, you know, potentially there is a vehicle in place to help a lot of this. I mean, part of the issue really is public sector land. There is still, you know, it's still the, it's still the case. There's a huge amount of land locked up with Department of Defence, Health and other areas that need to be released. And certainly the release of public sector land and, and having homes in place to bring sites to the market should be extremely helpful. I agree with Clive about public um, housing building. There's no way we'll hit 300,000 without um, public sector picking up a huge chunk. Everyone knows this, the government knows this. I think apart from um, my favourite hobby horse of regional planning, council house building is probably the other great unmentionable in Whitehall, but in some yeah, shape absolutely. or form, yeah. in some shape or form, it needs to come back. And there is a yeah. positive thing that you know, if you go back 25 years ago when I started in this, it was really council housing, private housing, and that was it. Yeah. And one was yeah. rent, and one was buy. Now the market's very different. If you look at yeah. student accommodation, if you look at the built to rent market, look at the intermediate market in terms of um, shared ownership. It's a much more fluid market. Housing associations are building for sale. Some developers are, are um, becoming um, RPs. And you've got a much more mixed economy. So in that context, it should be possible, I think, to shift the emphasis. And Clive's completely right about renting being counter-cyclical. That's crucial because that makes the difference in terms of build-out rates. Yeah. So I'm quite optimistic that we should be able to build on a 10-year blind basis for rent, and it's increasingly the case that young professionals, all kinds of people that may have previously wanted to buy, would prefer to rent. So there, it can be done. I just think we need to get out of this mindset that private good, public bad, and recognise that we need to actually come together with homes in the mix to actually make it happen. Could I just ask Andrew as well that, that you know, coming back to the point about smaller builders, a lot of those smaller, pretty medium sized builders usually get contracts from local authorities. Uh, and because, because it's less risky, isn't it? Rather than having to put the houses on the market and hope somebody comes along and, and the economy is in a good state for people to come and buy, you've got a contract from the local authority. You know, you know you're going to get paid at the end of the day. You've got that degree of certainty. So I, I think for a lot of those uh, the, the small and medium-sized uh, building firms, uh, I, I think they used to have a really good uh, relationship with their local authorities. And, and that, of course, has gone now. Mm. Thanks, Clive. Well, we're, we're coming to the end now of the webinar. So what I'm going to do is ask you both 
very succinctly, uh, if you can, just to sum up what you'd like in and out of the white paper, um, and then I'll uh, and then I'll sort of uh, say goodbye to everyone. But first of all, you, Clive, what, what would you like to see in and out of the, the white paper? I think a, a lot clearer definition about certainly the, the renewal part of, of the zoning. I'd like a, a complete review of permitted development to ascertain what's happened so far uh, and, and recognise some of the the, the, the risks. Um, the, the, They're major issues. I like a, I like a review of the uh, housing algorithm uh, and, and an open discussion about it. Uh, but, but positives, yeah, local plans are at the heart of this. We need simpler local plans. They need to be put on a statutory basis. Uh, and we need more resources for planning authorities so they can actually get on and do the job that everyone wants to see them do. Thanks, Clive. And over to you, Andrew. What would you like to see in and out of the white paper? I think of all of that, I think one of the real positives is the emphasis on consultation in the local plan making stage. You should keep that, keep the emphasis on digital. Um, but not lose sight of the fact that they need to address some of the elephants they've been nimbly walking around. So I would like at least a nod, not necessarily in legislation, but in terms of government policy and approach towards how they're going to attack the Greenbelt issue and the spatial planning agenda. And frankly, I would like them to read Clive Committee's report and some of the previous reports, because I think there's a lot more common ground between the parties than is recognised. And we need a bit less ideology and a bit more grubby pragmatic common sense about how to make it work because and that's there local authorities know um, that the system doesn't work developers know it doesn't work and central government does uh, and finally the, the one thing I want in there are some mechanisms for holding the local plan making and the local decision making process to account it doesn't have to be white all dictating but there needs to be a much clearer balance of carrots and sticks to actually make sure the developers, what developers want more than anything is certainty and the elimination or the reduction of risk. And it's this capriciousness at the local level that I think we should all be trying to target and remove. Hopefully the white paper will do some of that. Great. Well, well thanks both. Thank you very much indeed, Andrew Howard, Managing Director of BCG and Clyde Betts, uh, Chairman of the MHA CLG Select Committee, and to everyone uh, for turning up this afternoon. I think we can all agree it's been a fascinating discussion and thanks thanks for all your questions. This is obviously a, a key piece of legislation and we're awaiting uh, Clive, Clive, Clive Betts Committee's report on this. I understand there are about 40,000 submissions altogether as part of the wider consultation on the white paper. Um, it'll obviously have a large impact, whatever happens, on our built environment and on the future of the country. So again, thanks uh, to everyone from BECG and have a good afternoon. <laughs>